trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Some people will tell you do not listen to programs like this one. They will tell you that individuals like me who encourage people to revel in wrong think, to stop asking permission to be free, are dangerous, foolhardy extremists. You know, they can throw whatever labels they want. Uh, The bottom line is there's a very serious effort right now to keep all of us under someone else's control. And I think the best control to be under is your own control, self-control, self-government. That's where I'm coming from. I, uh, you know, I believe that there are, there are rules, there are laws. I, I believe there are commandments from God, actually, that, that people would be wise to follow. But I see so much uh, just raw hunger, lust for dominion over other people that uh, I don't have a choice but to push back against the people who unjustly want to run your life and my life and micromanage every little detail of what we can and cannot do. The people for whom, you know, we we are expected to come hat in hand, please, sir, may I draw another breath if it please the crown, you know, that kind of stuff. Nope, nope, nope. I am all about, uh, you need to claim your heritage as a free individual, and that starts with thinking for yourself. Everything else flows from there. So it's not important if you agree with me. I'm going to present some information. I've got some some wonderful articles to share today that hopefully will spark thought and help you recognize that, yes, I can be trusted to run my own life. But ultimately, that is a decision that you get to make. And isn't it uh, it just interesting how many things right now are in motion that could potentially cause some some pretty serious uh, upheaval in our lives and it's you know the rising prices uh, looks like the dollar is is kind of sitting there on the the brink of collapse now that uh, the chinese are going to be uh, uh, stepping up to create what is it the uh, <clears throat> not the petrodollar the petro yuan yeah there's there's a lot of intrigue and there's there's a lot of uh, inversion of reality out there and uh, and it's and it's getting nasty and this is not a call to, well, let's fight fire with fire and get nastier than they are. I'm suggesting that uh, you and I can have very lasting impact on the world simply by being the best possible person you can be. A person of sound character, a person of wisdom and virtue and, and courage. That will have impact. Now, is it going to get headlines? Are you going to get a Nobel Prize for it? Uh, uh, probably not. But then again, if you if you followed the Nobel Peace Prize, you know recently, uh, they they've been handing those things out with oil changes lately. It appears at least some of the people who've been receiving it, it's like really, that person got a peace prize. <laughs> okay, anyhow, let's uh, let's dive right in. We've got a couple of different things to cover. I, I mentioned there there's the potential for upheaval, and right now what I'm discovering and, and have been for some time is that uh, resilience is really the characteristic that carries us through challenging times and and this is not you know oh boy here it comes the end of the world spiel look if you live long enough you will face interesting times my friend uh jim sorry his name just escaped me jim i darn it he's the guy who made phillips jim phillips thank you there we go he makes the uh, arctic living uh, you know do-it-yourself uh, war or cold weather clothing 
And Jim Phillips has, has made this observation. I think he may have been quoting someone who said, you know, if you, if you live long enough, you're going to see interesting times. We're there. However old you are, if you're within the sound of my voice, you have lived long enough that the times have become very interesting. And so there's a lot of challenges in front of us. And, and I, I don't say this with a, with a hint of, oh boy, here comes the apocalypse. Cool. Um, I say this with the understanding that uh, right now, I think most of us are going to be feeling some pretty serious challenges to our lifestyle, our comfort, our ability to to basically enjoy the abundance that we have enjoyed to this point. Because, man, I'll be the first to admit, life's been pretty easy. Whatever challenges I've had, you know, getting enough food to eat, getting enough shelter and warmth and, you know, things like that, that's not really been a problem. But that could change. And it often does during fourth turning cycles. And we are in the deepest part of our fourth turning. So attitude is a big part of how to become resilient. And Daisy Luther has this remarkable article that I want to share with you about how to turn less into everything you need. She says, imagine a simple dinner made from a potato that has just been dug out of the earth. You have fresh butter and fresh sour cream made over the last week. You don't have much in the way of exotic spices, but just a bit of locally smoked paprika, some sea salt, and some black pepper. You don't have fancy air fryers, 947 different cooking vessels, or gadgets to cut it into fancy shapes. You have your potato, some olive oil, some tinfoil, and your oven. You bake your fist-sized potato after slathering it in fragrant dark gold olive oil, plus a couple extra ones for future meals. You cut it open, slather it with the fresh yellow butter, and season it with your salt, pepper, and paprika. Add a dollop of sour cream, then sit down at your table. You've spent about 50 cents total on this, or perhaps you grew every single bite yourself. The potato is tender, flaky, and earthy, delicately flavored with butter, filling your taste buds. The skin is crisp. The sour cream topping is a cool, delicious contrast. The flavors imparted by the simple seasonings are delicate yet rich at the same time. I know, I'm hungry too. I'm like, why, why, did, I, why did I pick right now to read this? But she says, this is what happens when you say, I had a delicious fresh potato loaded with delicious things, as opposed to, I only had a potato for dinner. Do you see the difference? So here, here are some of the lessons she shares from living differently. She says, as many of you know, I've taken off to spend some time in Europe, and things are a lot different here. She says, I'm here for a few months on a temporary basis to do some writing, but while I've been here, I think that there are some lessons we can take away from this that may help us prepare for the economic crisis that looms over us. As most of you know, Greece suffered its own economic collapse in 2009 that worsened over the course of the next five years. It was a terrible time, but she says gradually the money, re- the country rather, recovered to some degree. However, people still don't really make enough money to survive easily in the economy. Taxes are exorbitant. The infrastructures become badly degraded. Because of the economic crisis, things are less advanced here than they are in the U.S. There's less dependence on technology, a fact that's in unison welcome and frustrating. Less surveillance, you know, but also frustrating because you can't do everything online. So she says, but there are some things that help us through hard times that we can use. And I'm, she goes, I'm not saying Greece is better than the U.S. I'll always be an American, no matter how far I wander. I'm just saying that people are people, no matter where in the world you are. And the way others have adapted can sometimes help us find our way. 
So Daisy Luther says people here have less than people in the U.S., but many of them have turned less into everything they need to be healthy, happy, and content. She talks about local economies and says, first of all, that's one of the things you see, local economies. I'm in Athens, a large city. When I say local, I'm referring to my neighborhood. Each neighborhood seems to be built up around various circles with a small park in the center and businesses surrounding it. Just up the road from me, I can find all kinds of specialty stores, a fruit stand, a vegetable stand, a butcher shop, a dairy store, a bakery for bread and savory goods, a pastry shop for desserts, a store that focuses on dried goods like beans, pasta, rice, and seasonings. She says the people running the shops are quite proud of the origins of the food they sell. One man tells me of the farm his uncle owns, where his vegetables are grown. My uncle grows things differently. He touches each plant himself, he confides. Each vendor wants you to know why their product is so much better than anything else that you'll find. And there's a certain pride in this, and everything you purchase is of the utmost quality. After a few weeks of returning to the same shops and seeing the same people, you begin to build a rapport and a relationship. A bevy of shopkeepers enthusiastically cheer on my attempts at learning their language, correcting me, and having me say the word back properly. But she says it's not only that. Each week there's something called a likey, where farmers from the outlying areas come into town and pop up their orange tents, selling their current harvest. Now these happen all over the city, and each neighborhood has a different day on which their likey occurs. She says, I've gotten delightful fresh goods here, and it's absolutely incredible food. And the price is mind-blowing. She says, I handed a two-euro coin, that's about $2.12, to a man standing behind a mountain of fresh potatoes the other day and ended up with almost more than I could carry home. I got olive oil decanted into a container that looks like a plastic water bottle. I have honey from a farm that grows thyme. If it grows from the earth and if it's in season, she says you can find it there. And people tend to pay cash because their taxes are so extortionate. They build relationships, they scoff at the chain grocery stores and their pale offerings in comparison to the rich, fresh goodness you can get on your street. So Daisy Luther says perhaps this is something we could all look for. Maybe we could find farmers and vendors who take pride in their offerings because they've seen it through from start to finish. Perhaps we could go back to the basics, the things that don't come from packages and buying from people rather than corporations. I know that's a little bit too homey for some people, but there's more to this article. We'll come back to it on the other side of the break. Learning to make less everything that you need. I think this is going to be one of the more useful skills. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. I am sharing an article from Daisy Luther, who I I first became acquainted with where she blogs as the organic prepper. And she has shared some very, very useful information over the years. Strongly recommend her columns. I think I first encountered her on lewrockwell.com, one of my favorite resources for wrong thinkers. But I just, I love Daisy's article here about how to turn less into everything you need. There's something here that speaks to me. And I I don't know if if it's a message you need to hear as well, but I'm sharing it in in the hopes that somebody within the sound of my voice is is hearing this and going, my gosh, this this is exactly what I needed. She's living in Greece currently, writing about how they went through their economic collapse back in 2009. Things are still not like they were before. 
And in many cases, people have a bit less compared to us. But then again, we're kind of sizing up our own uh, economic collapse and, and uh, we may very well learn some good lessons from them. One of the things she talks about here is thrift as a way of life. She says, ever since the collapse and perhaps before, I've never visited previously, thrift has become a way of life. Here you don't always have hot water. You have to turn your water heater on about 20 minutes before you need it. Now that saves on electricity because you're only heating up the water for 20 minutes a day. And if you're careful, enough water will remain in the tank for you to wash your dishes and have at least warmish water for hand washing during the rest of the day. Nobody has dryers. You walk down the street and you'll see laundry flying on lines like flags from apartment balconies. There's no HOA nonsense here. Every balcony is loaded with laundry, tomatoes, plants, and herbs. Rooftops have solar panels and water tanks. Electricity is used in the smallest possible amounts at all times. Now, part of this is because the price here has skyrocketed. Now, it's all relative, but she says, I was pleasantly surprised when my first electric bill was just 43 euros, roughly 46.50 U.S. dollars. But she says, if I only made 800 to 1,000 a month, that's the typical wage for, for a Greek, that would be pretty devastating. So if you were to leave your water heater on all day or your heat or air conditioner on while you stepped out, locals would look at you as though you completely lost your mind. There's another thing she refers to, and this is, this is one that uh, I particularly resonated with, small pleasures. Now, she says one of the major guilty pleasures here is having a coffee. Greeks will sit outdoors at one of the many cafes here and sip coffee as a social event. In other words, a break from their workday or on a date. So instead of dropping $10 on lunch or dinner and $30 on drinks at a bar, the social outing here is a $2 latte. And what's more, she says the coffee is to be savored, sitting in one place. You don't get up and walk around with your coffee. You don't drive through to get it. You sit at a chair, at a table, like a civilized person. It's an entire ceremony. A beautiful day might be spent on a park bench, watching your children at a playground or reading a book. There's a park nearby loaded with orange trees. You can smell the faint whiff of citrus in the air. And benches are everywhere, placed to take in the views. Now she says walking is not just transportation, it's a joy. You walk wherever you can because... A, traffic is a nightmare, and B, parking is a nightmare. But it's not a grudging thing. There are lovely shop windows to peruse, beautiful balconies dripping with flowers and vegetables, plump stray cats hissing at you from low branches like the guardians of the trees, and the glorious sights of ancient Athens. Due to this, most people are fit and healthy and truly love being outdoors and walking to their destinations. Then she talks about the simplicity. She says, the meal I described above is quite basic, but the freshness of the ingredients made it delicious. I have no kitchen gadgets, few spices, and just one skillet and one baking sheet. Now, she says, that's a far cry from my well-equipped kitchen back in North Carolina. But the meals I make here are savory and decadent because every single component is as fresh as possible. Another common meal here is fascia gigantes, which uh, translates to giant beans, She says you can find them on nearly every menu of a restaurant boasting home-cooked food from grandma. And it's a frequent main dish in in home kitchens. These are simply large white butter beans cooked in tomato sauce. The sauce contains chunky tomatoes, a good olive oil, garlic, onion, celery, and carrots, and it's seasoned with oregano, thyme, bay leaf, and the tiniest dash of cinnamon. It cooks all day long till the beans are tender, and it's served with fresh, crusty bread dipped in more olive oil or slathered in fresh butter. 
In fact, she even includes a recipe in the link. So meals at home are generally very simple, but at the same time, there are there's tons of attention to detail and the best possible ingredients. And this next one really hit me too. She says, life here isn't a never-ending binge watch of Netflix or television. People go outside and enjoy the weather. They talk to their neighbors. They go for coffee, as mentioned above. And the many parks and green spaces are a testament to their love of nature. Now, Daisy Luther says, I love to sit in a park and read a book with the spring sunshine sparkling through the olive trees above me. She also says, I rarely see people arguing about politics or yelling about anything other than the stupid way another person is driving, and it's all forgotten within seconds with no hard feelings. People watch the birds feeding in their gardens, and nearly everyone feeds the stray cats and offers them water on the hot days of summer. Now, she says, this may sound like an ode to Athens, and I suppose it is in a way, but she says, the things I see here don't have to be unique to a different part of the world. Her point is, no place is perfect, but our attitudes are everything. We could all focus on the simple perfection of the ideal dark red strawberry or the tenderness of the beans in our soup or the fresh smell of the plants surrounding us as we wander through a place of nature, hoping to or trying to identify the, the different fragrances, fragrances rather, and apply them to the plop, proper flora. We can focus on what we do have instead of what we don't have. We can stop and look at the world around us and savor it. We can connect with other people and find things in common and a reason to laugh together. Now she says, I know, I'm, I'm not naive. I know we have deep problems and rifts that seem impossible to bridge in the United States. But if we start in our own neighborhoods and build those bridges and find some common ground, perhaps that could spread. Maybe we can make our own little corners of the world better just by appreciating them. It could take effort because we're used to having so much more, but a conscious attempt to try to take in every delicious, luxurious, decadent detail of a fresh piece of bread dripping with butter will make that bread the Feast of Kings. By the way, she has a point there. My wife is a wonderful baker, and uh, th- there are few things that compare to just the, the sheer luxury of bread fresh from the oven with butter. I'm sorry. It's one of those simple pleasures in life that... Uh, I will never turn down. Now, she says, as we scale back our lifestyles to manage this economic chaos we're facing, we can take a few notes from the way that others have done so. We can learn from them. We can embrace the things that we're left with. Who knows? It could turn out that your life actually becomes better once you get off the frantic hamster wheel. Having less doesn't have to be a bad thing with the right appreciation and attention to detail. Less can magically become everything you need. And in true form, you know, Daisy always says, what are your thoughts? What do you think? Share some thoughts in the, in the comments there at the bottom of her article. So I've included a link in my show notes. You can go to the show notes for March 27th, 2023, thebrianhideshow.com, and click on Daisy Luther's article about how to turn less into everything you need. I've, told, I've said before, you know, the, the last couple of moves that I've made have, have really brought me a long ways towards becoming more of a minimalist. I hate being owned by my stuff. And I still consider myself a prepper. You know, I still have, you know, this is what we may need at some point in time, but I'm taking a really hard look around and wondering, how would I do with less? And in my heart, I think that uh, less attachment to material things is actually going to be somewhat like a superpower as we uh, reap the uh, whirlwind 
that has been sown, you know, in terms of, of economics and, and monetary policy. I don't think it's avoidable. I think the can has been kicked down the road about as far as it possibly can go. Uh, you know, it's to me, it's, it's really telling when uh, the Federal Reserve Board uh, calls an emergency meeting on Friday to announce that there is no emergency. Yeah, something there just doesn't quite pass the sniff test. So, if tough times are coming, which at some point they will, let's uh, take a few lessons from Daisy Luther. Learn how to make less everything that you need and build that uh, attitude of resiliency. What do you say? This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Thanks again for for joining in. I hope it doesn't sound too apocalyptic today. I'm just, uh, I'm in one of those moods where I I really feel strongly that uh, we're about to experience a pretty major shift. And I hope I'm wrong. I really do. I hope hope you get that. Boy, you know, you're going to, are you going to gloat if the economy crashes? Not at all. I'm going to, uh, I'm going to suffer along with everybody else. But I really believe that having the right mindset and being able to be grateful for what you do have and 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 being able to accept that, okay, things have changed and, you know, it's time to embrace the change and move forward through it as best we can. That's going to serve us better than just screaming and kicking and, well, I better go on a riot because I'm upset about something. I know there are certain segments of society and political ideologies that encourage that kind of thing. I'm not one of them. I don't, I don't embrace that. I think... Uh, when, when tough times come, you're being given the opportunity to knock some rough edges off and become a better version of yourself. That never happens when you're comfortable, or at least it's, I can't remember any time in my life where I actually became a better person because I stayed in the comfort zone. It's always on the other side of the discomfort that that growth is recognized. All right, having said that, I'm sure you've heard a little bit about 15-minute cities. I, mostly what I've heard is people in Britain pushing back against these and going, whoa, what, what are we trying to do? And, and the idea is that, you know, well, a 15-minute city is going to be very convenient. Everything is within 15 minutes. It's all within walking distance, and it's just wonderful. Well, I, I have a wonderful warning here from Doug Casey on where this latest attempt at social engineering through 15-minute cities, which, you know, is going to save the earth, you know, protect the climate, but it's also setting us up for the next lockdowns. And that's something we need to be very careful of. Doug Casey, in an interview with International Man, is asked about the 15-minute city, an urban planning concept rapidly spreading in North America and Europe. And the aim is to make everything where people work, shop, get their education, health care, and leisure activities just 15 minutes away. The idea is for bureaucrats to restrict and eventually prohibit car use because everything is within walking or biking distance. Phasing out hydrocarbons in general and cars with internal combustion engines in particular is a primary goal of the carbon hysterics. Now, critics also argue that the 15-minute cities will eventually allow for total surveillance and control of people's lives as governments will inevitably pair them with an ESG social credit system and central bank digital currencies. By the way, that makes sense. That doesn't sound like wild-eyed conspiracy theory to me. So when Doug is asked, what's your take on the 15-minute city concept? Doug Casey responds, it's social engineering 
taken to a new level, trying to reform the way humans act and live. In fact, it's social engineering that's expressed in the form of civil engineering, putting people in the kind of houses and environments and locales that the elites, strike that, I mean the parasites, prefer. It's as if the whole human race is taking a role in the Jim Carrey movie, The Truman Show. But that's way too benign. The way they're trying to reform the cities and force people to stay in certain areas It's more like the Panopticon, which was a type of prison where all people could be observed easily by the guards at all times. Now, of course, keeping everybody within a 15-minute radius of their home sounds convenient, homey, and small-town-like, but it just makes things much more convenient for artificial intelligence to monitor where everybody is. Not just in their vehicles, either, because the next step along this path will be to make it desirable for everyone to have a chip implanted so individual bodies can be monitored. The 15-minute city concept is just a step on the way to something much more dystopian. So the interviewer then asks, 15-minute cities received a big boost from the COVID hysteria as many city councils and mayors sought to redesign city spaces amid the lockdowns. Now, that concept has spread to many areas in North America and Europe, with plans to transform parts of the biggest cities into numerous 15-minute city zones. We've already seen this happen in Ottawa, Oxford, and other large cities. What is really going on here? Doug's answer is it's all about control, but it's not going to be sold as a military, you-must-do-this type of control. It will be a soft, do-it-for-your-own-good type of control. And, of course, it's the part of the general climate insanity that is supposedly for the good of Mother Earth. The idea is to get people to stay out of their cars and, for that matter, to stay off planes and even public transportation. It'll be sold as a great way to get to know your neighbors, walk, and maybe bicycle. They're trying to return the world to medieval times where nobody went more than 15 minutes from their home. But not only because they weren't supposed to, but there might be dragons over the next hill. The next question comes as the global elite don't want the plebes to be as mobile as they used to be. In recent years, we've seen more and more travel restrictions. The COVID hysteria set a precedent for using lockdowns as official policy and introduced many confusing travel restrictions. The carbon hysteria also serves as a pretext for all sorts of proposals to limit and restrict travel. The trend is now the trend now in motion is gaining momentum. How do you see 15-minute cities within the context of this trend? Doug Casey responds, well, people are far easier to control if you know where they are at all times. And the elite, again, they are parasites that don't produce anything or serve a useful purpose, want the plebes to stay in place. Not just physically, but psychologically, economically, and politically. They'd prefer to live in a place, uh, in a world rather, where places like St. Mark's Square in Venice or Machu Picchu in the Grand Canyon aren't overwhelmed with the hoi polloi because they're back observing their 15-minute travel zones and adhering to requirements that allow them to expend only so many pounds of carbon. It'll be much more convenient for the parasites from, from a personal living point of view, in addition to affording them vastly more control. Now, the next question is, so why is the World Economic Forum promoting 15-minute cities? Why are they interested in this topic? Doug responds, well, in the past... The United Nations provided the premier forum for governments to get together and palaver about how to restructure the world. But the UN, fortunately, is fading into obscurity. It's now really no more than an expensive club for mid-level government officials to vacation in New York while playing big shot and connecting with other ambitious bureaucrats. The World Economic Forum is for the real power people. 
The WEF, however, needs a reason for existing. These people are into power and money. They naturally like to socialize with each other, scratching each other's backs and seeing themselves as masters of the universe. Now that they've gotten to know each other at the WEF and have clearly taken the reins over, at least of the Western world, they're no longer there to socialize. They have big plans for the rest of us. The concept of the 15-minute city is one of the many prongs of attack that they've launched to essentially take over the world, as outrageous as that sounds. So the interviewer then says, well, given everything we've discussed, what can the average person do to safeguard his sovereignty in general and his freedom to travel in particular? Listen to Doug Casey's answer. He says, first of all, try to relocate to a rural area where you're, in, where you're much more in control of your life. And where you're not surrounded by thousands of people who might rat you out as a nonconformist and could easily turn hysterical. The second thing is to get as rich as you can because having, gas, having assets helps insulate you from both the parasitic elites and the capiti sensi. I got to look that one up because I have no idea what that one means. And the third thing you can do is to resist any way you can. Speaking out, letting other people know they aren't alone and thinking what's going on is actually evil but recognize the risks of doing so. We can't change the trends of history, says Doug Casey. The atmosphere in today's world is like the early days of the U.S. Civil War or the early days of World War I or World War II. The boobs have become stupidly hysterical, enthusiastic to join up to fight some real or imagined foe and marching together in lockstep. A giant mind virus is well on its way to capturing most people. He says we live in really dangerous times. What an interesting note to, to end that uh, article and that interview on. And I don't disagree with what he's saying here. A giant mind virus is well on its way to capturing most people. And I guess in some small way, that's what this program exists to do, is to help inoculate people against that mind virus, or at least get you to question it enough that if you see something that looks, I don't know, out of sort or manipulative, to be able to recognize it as such and step back while there's still time to do so. I don't think it's a matter of, well, Brian, tell us the answers. Come on, provide solutions for us. You're, you're pointing out all these problems. Tell us what we're supposed to do. That's the thing, though. I really can't tell you what to do. And it's not because, uh, you know, I've, I've not thought about this or, you know, studied the issue. I know what works for me, but only you really are qualified to say what would work best for you and the people you love. So, the key here is, think. Question. Be resilient, be flexible, you know, but, but be willing to think for yourself to reject the conventional wisdom that everybody else seems to be embracing. Push it aside, or at least look at it closely enough that you can see it from as many angles as possible before you settle on, uh, okay, I can accept this or I'm willing to embrace this. I mean, we have whole systems that are set up to root out and to uh, prevent you from encountering disinformation, which, uh, by the way, we used to call the truth. Systems to prevent you from seeing or recognizing the truth. What's the antidote? Come on, you know it as well as I do. It's to think for yourself, to engage in wrong think, as the elites would put it. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. Quick shout out here to my sponsors who make this program possible. They include Monticello College. Let me try that again. MonticelloCollege.org. LifesavingFood.com. Borelli.com and TMCPNation.com. That would be my friend John Harvey, host of the Modern Conservative Podcast. He's got a great store with lots of cool, freedom-oriented swag. And it's something that uh, if you if you like to wear your freedom on your sleeve, I think you'll really like what John has to offer, tmcpnation.com. By the way, use the code BHIDE at checkout, and John will throw in a nice gift if you spend $100 or more. Pretty cool stuff. All right, I've got three quick articles that I want to touch on in this last segment. Um, the first one is from Martin Geddes. I, I don't remember exactly where I encountered Martin Geddes. He lives in the UK, and right now he is fighting official corruption on the part of like his, his some of the city bureaucracies where he lives. And I have a terrific article from him about never accept the fob off from officialdom. In other words, when a public servant acts like they are your master, he says it's time to push back hard. And in particular, he talks about the saga he's having with the Durham County Council to get his name taken off the electoral register. I don't know if he has legal training or what, but he really has a brilliant mind. And I think he shows by his actions and some of his hard-won wisdom how to stand up to and push back and call out the little bureaucracies, even the ones close to home, that somehow just presume that uh, they have authority over your life and you will do as you are told and do not ask questions. I'm not telling you you need to be confrontational, okay? I, I understand. That's uncomfortable for most of us. But if you've reached that point where you're like, you know what, I got to do something. I, I need to stand up for my freedoms. Read Martin Geddes. Take a look at some of the things he suggests. And and again, his situation is his situation, but there's some powerful lessons here about how you can push back against bureaucracy and, and basically force it to play by its own rules. And it's a beautiful thing. And I know he's driving a few people crazy, but I think he's doing it not only in the right way, but for the right reasons. So check out the article that I link from Martin Geddes. Secondly, you don't have to sympathize with January 6th defendants to be horrified at the way that the events of that day have been exaggerated and distorted by the political class and media. More and more information is coming out all the time. Uh, the latest uh, release that, that came out, I don't know who it was who released this. It wasn't Tucker Carlson. Um, but there was, there was body camera footage from undercover Capitol Police officers who were encouraging and helping people toward the Capitol, helping them climb up the, the works and, and, and confront police there. Yeah, that whole idea, well, this was just Trump telling his supporters to go nuts and overthrow our democracy. No. There were people very clearly operating on the inside. There were Antifa types, there were feds, there were informants everywhere. Julie Kelly has a marvelous article about the proof we're seeing that is taking this narrative apart no matter how hard the D.C. elites try to keep it uh, under control. And what's what we're left with, though, is a pretty painful realization. If they would lie and distort and and manipulate information like this, is there anything that they wouldn't do to, to maintain their power? These are dangerous people. They need to be separated from power as soon as possible. 
Don't count on the mainstream media to tell you that either. They'd rather go down with the ship. And trust me, there's a part of me that hopes that they do. All right, final note here. The ongoing war against reality. I don't know about you, but there's times I get really tired of it. James Howard Kunstler says, Take heart. The season is here. The general wake-up call that will not be gaslighted away or otherwise ignored. He starts with a quote from Samuel, Samuel Johnson. Depend upon it, sir. When a man knows he is to be hanged in a fortnight, it concentrates his mind wonderfully. Now, James Howard Kunstler says, of course, the newspaper USA Today chose transgender activist Lee Fink for its Woman of the Year Award because in the USA of the here and now, today, for instance, boundaries are a thing of the past. And if a woman of the year happens to come with the package that signifies male of the species, you'd better ignore that and go along with the gag or prepare for the punishments that will come down until your morale improves. He says the transgender movement has crystallized into the party of chaos's favored instrument for enforcing its ethos of unreality on a population obdurately stuck on thinking in categories, on making hateful distinctions between things. Better to live in a protective miasma of undifferentiated sensation than a cruel state based on pattern recognition where one is incessantly prompted to understand how objects and life forms around us differ, where things begin and end, and what all that means relative to your own ideally amorphous existence. Matthias Desmond, Belgian author of the 2022 book The Psychology of Totalitarianism, proposed that a political faction subject to mass formation psychosis the group hysteria that sets the scene for tyranny would often do, or would demand rather that the public swallow a cavalcade of increasingly absurd ideas in order to soften up their brains so as to make it easier for leaders, read that, influencers, to push them in any desired direction. He says, I would propose that we have probably achieved peak brain softening now in this land. The only thing left to challenge is the distinction between being alive or dead, which is exactly what you would get in Zombieland a place that the party of chaos and its mentors in the World Economic Forum long to take you to, where you will have nothing and be happy and never think a hateful thought, or any thought not pre-cooked for you and served up by the party like so much dim sum. Choose that or it's the nothingness and bliss of the grave. It's all the same to the party leaders, voila, the totalitarian nirvana. He says folks are beginning to grok how all this works now after years-long epic mind screw by the folks and the increasingly malevolent permanent bureaucracy running a nation on the glide path to destruction. Not a few people around America still capable of independent thought are less than avid for liquidation and certainly not willing to be absorbed into the amoeba-like blob of redundant, undifferentiated protoplasm that a totalized population must be in for the end state of political wokery. Now in the spring of 2023, he says woke is suddenly mutating into a general wake-up call. The animals are stirring from their long sleep of compliance as ruin stalks the land. The season of concentrating the mind is here. When it becomes a matter of sink or swim, people once again remember the difference between being dead or alive, so the test is on. He says expect three evolving dynamics to stipulate our country's zeitgeist in the stirring months to come. First, the collapse of our project for using Ukraine to destabilize Russia, an enterprise so feckless it could only have been conceived by the dead of brain. Our geniuses of foreign affairs also screwed the pooch on this one. It's almost too obvious that they never cared about the people of that sore beset land. Notice they do not even use the word peace in any of their confabulations about what's going on there. 
because it is the opposite of what they seek, which is chaos unending. Thus, others will end the project for us, namely our antagonist there, Russia, and the regime of Joe Biden for the second time in its mortifying two-plus years of rule will be left holding its limp generative member in its collective hand. Another humiliation for our overreaching imperial soldiery and the deluded empty suits commanding it. Will they be able to pretend this time as they did in Afghanistan 2021 that there's nothing to see here, folks? Just a blizzard of press releases declaring mission accomplished or some other craven BS? (laughs) He says, I don't think so. The reaction may be enough to bum-rush Joe Biden and company out of office. His grotesque family rackets, including the Ukraine grift, will finally and magically come to the public's attention. And that'll be all she wrote for JB, except for the historians waking from their own long catatonic spells to record the disaster they will swear they couldn't see coming. Next, he says, we will go through the tipping point where a critical mass of the population, not just in America, but throughout Western Civ and beyond, realizes they have been poisoned and injured by the mRNA vaccines they were so eager to line up for. It will produce a special sort of collective agony centered around a raging despair that leads to, with astonishing speed to prosecutions. The torpor and uncertainty of the past three years evaporates and the machinery of law actually starts cranking again and in the right way. Not as a mere instrument of coercion and intimidation, but to actually seek justice. Third will be the transformation of a raging inflation into a ruinous debt deflation that leaves Americans one way or another with no money. At the same time, the people will wake to the wrecking of their economy and or their energy rather and food supplies. A line will appear drawn in the ground from sea to shining sea as if by a cosmic power and everybody, the formerly woke, the unvaxxed, the penitent and unrepentant, the middle and lower orders especially, who suffer the most harshly, will all find themselves on one side of that line in opposition to the wicked who have brought a hard rain upon them. And there you will finally see the beginning of your long-promised hope and change. No need even to wait for it. At long last, he says, it's upon us. Now, somehow that manages to sound actually a little bit rosy, (laughs) or at least optimistic. But his point is well taken. There is a wake-up call that is sounding, and people are definitely hearing it. This is The Brian Hyde Show.